good morning, good day, good afternoon, good evening, and then once you start the day over, you I guess you could say you loop it again. Yes, you can tell I've been playing an awful lot of Deathloop, but that's for a further segment down the road here in episode 4 of the Dark Spider cast. I am your host, Dark Spider David, and uh, here's the thing. Here's something a little bit unprecedented. This is likely going to be a shorter episode. Possibly even the shorter, shortest episode that I've had on the show thus far. And the primary reason is, quite frankly, not a whole lot really transpired this past week from the last time that there was a show. There's, as much as I tried to dig up enough info news outlets that pertain to the stuff that I care about, the stuff that I want to vent on, there's not really a whole lot in terms of you know number of stories the actual number of things that have broken but there is one or at the very least two significant developments one of which was actually announced very late in the game which was yesterday's nintendo direct and trust me i have i have some really strong feelings about some things on a big picture sort of sense about that nintendo direct that i've somewhat illustrated when i was reacting to it live on my live stream on twitch.tv slash David yesterday while it was happening. And it's basically during this podcast, I'm going to try to be able to illustrate those thoughts, try to elaborate more on what I've been thinking about, especially after having the night to kind of marinate on it and think about what was what were the things that I looked at and said, this is the stuff that I genuinely hate, and then this is the, the stuff that maybe I need to give some time to, maybe I need to absorb it and I digest it a little bit, and maybe I'll feel it about it a little bit different in the morning, and then kind of like what I was foreshadowing here, something's just that didn't really change. So we're going to be talking about the Nintendo Direct, I'm going to be talking about Episode 7 of What If, winding down uh, here to the eventual finale of What If that's coming up in a couple of weeks. As well as also what I've been playing, or rather I should say not playing because of one particular game. And also a development here in my life that could or could not, maybe just a tiny bit, affect the scheduling of not just my live streams and my content, but potentially the podcast. And I really do mean the phrase could, because it's not a full-blown, like, likelihood that it's going to either shift the day that the podcasts are going to be moving or the scheduling of when they're going to be going up the ideal goal here is still to post the the podcast on Fridays but I guess I should probably just jump right into it without any sort of uh, necessary diligence or any meandering I did pick up a job now you know, during this time, I was facing a uh, crisis of unemployment, trying to find the right fit for me as far as what kind of job I would like to go moving forward. And I know that I made it pretty vocal, whether it be on the podcast or on videos or in live streams in the past, that I just don't want anything to do with either retail or fast food. You know, I've been there, done that. It's not like I have not worked those jobs and haven't exactly built a proper opinion or a proper stance on those jobs. No, I have, and they suck, especially right now in the times that we're living in where common sense and morale and ethics are practically going out the window and we're facing the end of the world as we know it. I mean, I'm not, I know that sounds very doom and gloom, but I'm not exactly. I, I, there's just nothing in my fi- in any fiber of my being that's like willing to rule any of that part out, any of those you know contingencies out of the world potentially ending now with the pandemic and the way that people are just naturally eating each other, just like the Joker said that we would. It's happening, and 
that's all I have to say about that. So with that, the the occupations of fast food or customer service or retail have definitely given me a firsthand window peek, window look into how just people are just devolving instead of evolving into just the state of chaos and despair and mayhem. So that's why those avenues, as pity as it may sound, as uh, bougie as it may sound, those two forms of occupations, I immediately ruled out. I'm like, I no longer want to do anything like that anymore. And that's why I really focused my and funneled down my options to, of course, go, you know, just, you know, look deep down in my heart and be like, what job do you want? And I'm like, I would love to have a video editing job, something that has to do with content creation, something to do with actual uh, uh, substance of things that I like, whether it be editing, filmmaking, directing, writing, uh, anything maybe centered around the subject of film, TV, video games, stuff like that. So I've taken to, you know, pr uh, programs and, and outlets and different sites that are used for job searches, such as Indeed, ZipRecruiter, and then eventually LinkedIn. LinkedIn is probably, was probably for the longest time the bastard child as far as what sites I would generally and originally you know, formally like to have used for job searches. It wasn't until I finally decided to take uh, matters a little bit more seriously as far as my search for video editing jobs that then I noticed that amongst all the ones that I've been using, LinkedIn is actually the one that prospers as far as video editing jobs because not only is there more variety more option more people posting their things on there as far as sources and again those job those proper job listings to say that hey we're looking for video editors uh, whether it be remotely or in the office and that was always been that's been dope for quite a while but on top of that i feel like out of all the sites that i've been using linkedin is actually the one that would aptly tell me when not only someone viewed my application, but somebody act actively downloaded my resume, it would actually send me push notifications saying, hey, so-and-so downloaded your resume. And I'm over here going like, wow, they actually took the time to download the resume and potentially view it and file and put it in a section where it's like, OK, these are the people that we have to call back. Of course, there's at that point. It's anybody's guess as far as where where they are in the process or how they're going about the process or whether or not I am still in the process. You know, even if they just downloaded the resume, maybe somebody higher up took a look at the resume and said no. And I will not be able to properly know until either I get some kind of notification saying, hey, we're passing up on the job. Because as you grow older, at least this is my stance, this is, has been my... My viewpoint on things, especially when uh, searching for jobs, is that I personally, and of course it's subjective, some people might be different about this, but for me, it's always been worse getting nothing but radio silence when searching for a job and somebody actively looking at your application and getting radio silence as opposed to a proper rejection notice or rejection letter. Actually being, these days, I actually prefer to be told no as opposed to not being told anything at all. And I'm pretty certain, I'm pretty certain that a handful of people out there would, would agree. But there's just something so um, gut gnawing about not knowing, about just simply not knowing whether or not they're considering you or not and just letting the days turn into weeks and then the weeks turning into months. 
as opposed to like getting some notice again or or letters saying hey we're gonna pass up but don't you know feel free to apply again in the future or whatever at least it's out of your mind at least my brain is at uh at peace knowing that hey that one didn't work out. Let's move on to the next one. And I know that going into the industry of film and, and television, rejection is going to be a part of the game. It's going to be a part of the beast. And I know that taking no's, no's, and no's, and no's over and over is just going to be a cycle I'll have to get used to. And to be honest, I feel like at this point, I am starting to get used to it. Um, so, yeah, I, that's the only thing that I really wish LinkedIn would probably emphasize a little bit more on, on employers just to let us know, like, hey... If you decide to pass this person up, maybe you should let them know that way they're not just lingering around, thinking to themselves, is something going to happen? Should I keep my options open, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, with that said, like I said, recently a handful of video editing jobs that I've been applying through LinkedIn or using LinkedIn to find them only to then apply on the, 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 the company's website has been actually rather fruitful. I want to say about two or three applications a day, et cetera, et cetera. Despite my efforts, though, to either find a video editing job on LinkedIn or turning to a state job on CalCareers websites, which again, there are a handful of, there are, I've applied with like over a thousand office assistant uh, typing applica- uh, applications on uh, through the state of California. And two of them are actually an active state. Active state means that they've, they're actually on the metaphorical or virtual desk of the, of the hiring department to be looked at, be, you know, searched up, cleared to then be asked for an interview or look at my assessments, which I've already taken. Even with all these things being kind of in a limbo, you know, standby state where it's like it might happen, it might not happen. It's a matter of waiting. And though technically speaking, I can wait, you know, as far as just being patient, you know, finding things to do in the meantime, as far as content creation, editing video, Games to play, etc., etc. You know who is not waiting? Bills. Whether it be the phone bill that I'm in charge of, or the two rather exuberant credit card bills that I need to start whittling down to get the credit score up and in order to hopefully move out with the girlfriend in the foreseeable future. Because she is an authorized user on those two credit cards, actually. So that means that her, my credit score up means her score goes up. Means both of us have a greater chance of getting cleared for an apartment or a car or anything like that. You know, adult stuff. It's time to adult. And being an adult means making the the difficult choices. And as Dino said, yeah, making the, the toughest choices requires the strongest wills. Even if this, that strong will is necessary to turn to Big Daddy Bezos and apply for Amazon. And that that's you know why I want to take this segment to then talk about the scheduling for the podcast. Because starting Thursday, the 30th? Is it the 30th or the 29th? No, it should be the 30th. The 30th, right? Today's the 24th, Friday the 24th. Yeah, so Thursday the 30th. Thursday the 30th is my first day at, uh, I don't want to say a nearby because it's about a 40-minute drive, but, uh, you know, an Amazon warehouse where I'll be sorting and uh, dealing packages and stuff, you know, the usual stuff. And on the bright side, not only is it a job that I am technically having, but it's also someone a job that doesn't necessarily come with the things that I was really despising about the customer service jobs or the customer-centric jobs 
in retail and fast food, which is that there are no specific customers that I have to answer to. It's just a matter of dealing with the labor work. So if I can, I, I would like to say that if I can make it past my first week and not hate it, I don't have to like it or even love it, but if I just don't hate it within that first week, I would probably tell myself we're probably looking at a good fruitful month to a month and a half long endeavor with Amazon. That way I can get enough money to at least substantiate those bills at minimum payments for the next two to three months while I wait for one of these video editing jobs or state jobs to go through because like I said they're all in standby mode and I've, I've already been told by the girlfriend and a handful of friends that hey if you're vying for the state jobs state jobs take a long time to get processed even if you do end up getting the job it takes a while for them to actually look at you and be like all right you're ready to go because they want to make sure that you're someone that's here <laughs> to stay and amongst the video editing jobs there's actually one in particular that requires me to take a not necessarily a test but like complete an assignment that's actually due here in the next couple of days as the recording of this this episode there's an assignment that I actually need to get to work on which is also another tiny little reason as to why I want to cut this episode down to uh, merely you know one hour or so because I do need to jump uh, on this train here of the on this thought train of trying to con- concept you know co- co- you know create a- ideas for this assignment that could probably put me in the running for a potential video editing gig and that's something that I need to kind of focus on for the weekend so while I wait for these things to work, I need some form of income, and if Amazon is the one that needs for that to happen, then it needs to happen. So as of right now, my schedule is Thursday through Monday, so I'll have Tuesdays and Wednesdays off. Thursday through Monday from 4.30 p.m. to 1 a.m. So it's an ideal schedule where not only is traffic not too bad because the direction that I'm going on with the freeway is actually the opposite of where people are coming from from getting off hours. So that kind of works in my favor. I've actually already tested it out um, by driving there not too long ago and experiencing not much really traffic on my way down there. So that was good. But then I'll be coming back up on in, you know one in the morning. So obviously it's dead at night. Very easy to kind of come and go. And also, I'm a night owl, so I'm habitually, like, naturally up until, like, 3 or 4 in the morning anyways, so no need to really wake up early or go to bed early, so at least it fits that bill. It's just a matter of, like I said before, getting used to the the field work, the labor work, lifting and, you know, walking and standing, getting used to that rhythm again that I have done in the past with the food and retail jobs, but it's just been so long that it's time to... Get the old uh, rattly bones here in order. So with that in mind, say, for example, right now I'm recording the episode early Friday afternoon. Theoretically, the podcast can still go up on Fridays. It's just a matter of making sure that I get things done in a structural time so that I still have enough time to edit uh, publish the, the episodes, make sure that the balancing on the bass and the treble and equalization and gating is all clear so that the, the quality of the, the podcast will still come through while at the same time making sure that it doesn't feel rushed, it doesn't feel compacted, and it still goes up on a timely manner. There's potential that maybe if things are looking a little slow on the week, kind of like it was about to be this week with the exception of the Nintendo Direct, 
then it's possible that maybe I might take some liberties and record the podcast on a Thursday. That way, at least Thursday night when I come home from the shift, I will then get to work on editing the podcast so it can go up very early Friday morning and not have to really worry about it too much further after that. So there might be taking some liberties there. Uh, Otherwise, if maybe I'm just too tired or I'm caught up with an assignment or with some kind of video editing work or things like that, or I'm just trying to game and get things done in that in that format, then I'll try to leave it to the latest possible time, which will probably be around either this time or maybe a little bit on the earlier side of Friday afternoon so that it can get to podcast services that this is fed to in the usual time that it goes which is friday every friday until further notice so right now i would probably say the podcast is probably the least affected thing that well one of the least affected things from this new schedule that's about to start with my work at amazon uh video editing is probably going to be about the same because i'm trying to shoot as much video as possible in bulk so that i can go up in the next like as of right now i want to say i got about four or five videos pre-recorded already it's just a matter of getting them edited which means that we're looking at about a month month and a half's worth of uh videos uh to go up uh twice a week for the next like four or five weeks so that's why i feel like kind of covered at least for the time that i'm planning on working at amazon anyways so you can see right there now david why is it that you only want to work at amazon for a set amount of time because like i said I want to feel confident in myself that in that time I get enough money just to hold off the bills for a set amount of time while I wait for something better to come along. And also, having worked in retail during the holidays, the amount of the amount of years that I've done, I just can bring myself to imagine just how crazy working at Amazon entering November is going to be. Because I would probably be a little accepting if it ends up being like a pay increase, okay. If it's an hour increase, well, they're like, oh, yeah, you'll get overtime money, but the only way that that works is with overtime work, and that requires like 10-hour shifts as opposed to 8-hour shifts. That's where probably I will draw the line, and that's where I'm probably going to want to book it before making things any any worse. So... We'll see how that transpires. We'll see how that goes. Like I said, I want to definitely try this thing out for about a week or two and see where I kind of fall fall with it. All right, as usual, at least until the show wraps up, what if time? So, going to keep it a little vague on the spoilers, even though I personally feel like there's not much to really spoil until the very, very end of this week's episode where things really did unfurl in a very unexplained sort of way, but there could also be an explanation for that, especially because of the mid-season trailer that they put out not too long ago. So this week was the Party Thor episode, aka with the official title, What If Thor Was an Only Child? And basically... This is, you know, for up until this point, the show is obviously animated, and the interpretation, the, the 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 pretense that we were all under as far as the decision to make what if animated as opposed to live action is that it was all for the sake of flexibility, allowing actors to return without having to put the suit on, put the dots on, you know, get into character, deal with the wires, deal with the green screen, deal with all the rigmarole of actually acting in these <laughs> in these movies. 
and just bring the the voice to to the character and also allow the creators of the show the people who wrote you know directed and kind of conceptualized the entire thing to look at it from a very outside of the box perspective because with the form of animation especially with this whole computer generated cell shaded look they can be flexible with how things work in that space whether it be story wise or action wise um, episodes like Captain Carter where she has particular movesets that you know for a fact could not have worked in live action otherwise that shit would be rated R or Doctor Strange where the, the, the expense of bringing those powers between Doctor Strange and the, you know, the forces that he's fighting in that episode it's just immaculate to the point where I'm like that's in live action that thir- those 30 minutes alone would have been probably 100 uh, 150 maybe even 200 million dollars alone and a quarter of that will probably go to Cumberpatch himself. So that's what one of the things that was very fr- uh, fruitful about bringing What If in an animated state. It's with the Party Thor episode this year, episode 7, that we two things came to realization, at least for me. One, this is it was here where I realized why they did the switch with zombies. Because I could have sworn... For the longest time, unless I'm having another Mandela effect, which is something I've been having a lot recently with a lot of things, gaming, movies, whatever, regular life. But I'm pretty certain, if I do my research, zombie Marvel Zombies, or uh, What If Zombies, was supposed to be episode 7 when the original slate of the episodes was revealed, not too long, you know, before the show even aired its first episode. And I feel like at the last minute they did a switch where they moved zombies to five and party Thor to seven and or, or six. And I think Killmonger was supposed to be either six or five or something like that. You know, it was, it was the last three that I think were kind of swapped around. And it, it then made sense why that swap happened. And also, this was the first episode amongst this animated show that truly, truly did in fact feel like a cartoon. Like, not just a show, but a legitimate cartoon. A fun cartoon, but a cartoon nonetheless. Because if this episode of Party Thor was done in live action in any other format or, you know, kind of look, it probably would have been stupid. It honestly probably would have been stupid as far as premise is concerned because being an only child then made Thor into the overindulgent party animal that he has always been made out to be in actual Norse mythology. Now, granted, in legitimate, you know, quote-unquote accurate Norse mythology, Thor was actually more of a dick than than anything. In fact, almost all of the gods are were dicks and you know crazy ass you know beings. Um, here he just leans more towards that party frat boy kind of leniency that either the mythology has kind of hinted at, not gone full force, but whether it be with the drinking or the excessive eating or just the excess in general. This episode leans into that while at the same time giving it that very cartoon kind of look and layer and perspective over the entire thing where it's all about having fun because prior episodes were all about telling a message telling some kind of cautionary tale or anything like that this was the first episode that was legitimately just like we don't have a message here honestly I mean if and if there was one it's like listen to your mother that's really about the um 
the butt of it because outside of that, it's just about Thor being the party animal that he is, and this is probably also right on the onset. This pretty much unfolds around the time that Thor unfolds back in 2011. And so him and Jane Foster haven't exactly met, really. It's actually during this episode that they meet for the very first time. But it's treated in a very comedy sort of way. Or you can even argue a romantic comedy. Like there's scenes where that are pulled completely from teenage comedies, romantic comedies, and just comedies in general. Where it's legitimate a animated comedy or a cartoon comedy that just happens to have Marvel characters in it. And... Marvel lore or just you know comic book things about it whether it be fight sequences between two superpowered beings or easter eggs or references to things that have unfolded in the MCU but outside of that it really is just an episode that it's probably the first official episode and that's funny considering that we're seven episodes in but and some could make legitimate arguments that the first fun episode was episode two because it was meant to be kind of like a heist thing but even that episode had implementations that led to some consequences especially towards the end this is the episode where quite literally almost the entire episode is like I said just this big one fun thing that's made to you know make you have fun, laugh. My girlfriend was dying in some scenes, especially uh some scenes as far as like the reactions that you know the things that would transpire in the episode especially centered around Thor would get both uh Jane and Darcy uh both played by Natalie Portman and Kat Dennings, respectively. I mean, Kat Dennings, I could see her being, you know, coming back to voice uh, Darcy. It was Natalie Portman that actually kind of surprised me to come back because, at first, you know, going into this, I was like, okay, they probably just got a a replacement, a sound-alike or whatever, especially because of the history that Natalie Portman has had with the MCU as far as her hesitance to want to continue. But it does really look like they've convinced her... um, with a proper direction for the character, not just with her upcoming change in Love and Thunder, I'm not going to say any more than that because of potential spoilers, not just because of the changing her direction for her character in Love and Thunder, but also here. And as soon as she started talking, I'm like, oh shit, we actually got Natalie Portman in this. Like, I can actually hear her. And she also does a great job, which is funny because I, I, I'm almost going to give her maybe more credit as a voice actress than any of the other uh, actors here because remember how in past episodes where I would complain about how the voice acting felt rushed and inconcise and, it, in you know, th- there was a lack of, of uh, what's the word I'm looking for, of uh, consistency as far as how people would talk to each other it just didn't sound natural. It sounded like they were you know, recorded in the different booths and different times, et cetera, et cetera, because of logistics, the pandemic, et cetera. Natalie Portman held her own. And up until this point, the only people that I was giving uh, like benefit benefits of the doubt to as far as holding their own for voice acting were actors that had a theater background or an animated background or some kind of virtual character background. Uh, actors like Benedict Cumberbatch and Tom Hiddleston who have a theater background because they know that they have to enunciate their voice a little bit more to have themselves be heard. And then Andy Serkis in last week's episode because he, the character that put him on the map was a virtual character, Gollum. So he has a plethora, those three actors in particular had a plethora 
of great uh, background to make their voice acting top notch and stand out amongst the other actors that just didn't sound like they quite fit, despite being the same actors who were part of the MCU. Natalie Portman and Chris Hemsworth, actually. I would say Chris Hemsworth, Kat Dennings, and Natalie Portman held their own in this week's episode, and I don't believe any of them have theater background uh, experience, so... They, you know, I have to give them some great amount of uh, credit in terms of like holding their own as far as voice actors did. And, and because of the nature of the episode being more cartoony, more fun, this time around, there was rushness in the voice delivery. But because of the aesthetic of, again, this episode feeling more of a cartoon than any of the others, less grounded, more goofy, more tongue in cheek, it felt more at home. Strangely, you know, kind of like those old animated uh, 90s cartoons of like Bat, Bat, well, not necessarily Batman. Batman was actually a legitimately more slower paced and knew what it was doing. But Spider-Man, X-Men, where you have characters just almost at, at some points talking over each other unintentionally because of the recording and because of how sandwiched the voice, the lines of dialogue were mixed together. This time around, it just felt more at home because of just, like I said, the pitch and the direction they intended with this episode of Thor being a frat boy, realizing that his, you know, him trying to throw the biggest party ever was going to have consequences, etc., etc. Even downright to some of the visual gags when you see a country and you see the name of that country written on the country it's like okay we we definitely know what's what's going on here as far as aesthetic and tone and and whatnot and for the most part like i said that is pretty much the the message of this episode is just you know was just to have fun and maybe listen to your mother until the end where something really interesting happens and it's a very and it's a very dun 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 kind of moment that what if is no stranger to. However, with caveats that again at the surface level sound unex- unexplainable and don't make an awful lot of sense, but there's an explanation that could potentially make it sense, especially considering all of the evidence that has been that now presented forward up until this point. We get a very Twilight Zone-esque ending, but it literally comes out of nowhere to the point where the reason why it differentiates itself as coming out of nowhere is because the previous ominous endings that we have gotten in What If thus far that are, again, very reminiscent of something like the Twilight Zone or whatever, where it's like, oh, you you know, you shouldn't have done this and look what you have to, you you reap what you sow. Every single time that What If has done an ending of this caliber, it's always been connected to something else that has happened in the episode. There, it was always thematically surged to what has been going on in the episode overall. The two that stand out to me as far as those kind of endings being connected to you know the overall theme and, and uh, premise of the episode would be episode two with T'Challa being Star-Lord. You know, if he becomes Star-Lord, then that means that somebody else is not Star-Lord and that is going to have a consequence in and of itself. And then the zombies episode, not realizing that while our heroes were fighting zombies, they kind of forgot something that was kind of established at the beginning of the episode. And the entire time I was thinking like, wait, this character was coming with a warning. Are we going to ignore that warning? And it looks like our characters ignored the warning. And thankfully the episode did not and made it clear that that warning 
has come to roost at the end of that zombies episode. So I was like, all right, cool. That was actually kind of neat. This episode ends with something that just comes out of left field so far from that field that there's no way that going forward they cannot not explain it and in a potential crossover style kind of event. Which means that the anth how do I put this in terms of words? The anthology nature of the episode is about to come to an end. And it's funny because if you have seen I haven't seen it, but I've seen screen grabs of it. And because of that, I refuse to watch it because I'm like, all right, we're only two episodes away. I can wait two weeks. You know, I don't want to really delve into spoilery territory. But there is a mid-season trailer episode out there for What If that hints at these further developments in the in the season. And I almost want to say, the you know, the series because I don't know if there's going to be a season two. But at the same time, considering that this is, in fact, a What If um, style kind of show and considering that the MCU has no end in sight... I could definitely see there being a season two. You know, what if Shang-Chi never found the rings? Or what if, uh, you know, the Eternals did interfere with the Thanos battle? Eh, you know, like th things like that could transpire. So there is definitely a lot of room for there to be a season two. You know, but uh, that's besides the point. Let's just say that that mid-season trailer hints at what the ending of Party Thor is also hinting at where it's like, like I said, things come out of left field so far and so quick that not only is there no way to not explain this development, but even another character uh, in particular who has been doing a very serviceable job of telling us the story of what if or the each uh, story uh, in each episode of what if doesn't even know what the hell's going on. Even he's like, wait, what the fuck? Like, he doesn't actually say that, obviously, but even he has a look on his face and the sound in his voice that he's like, uh, wait a minute, what is this? And if this character's caught so much off guard, then something needs to be brewing that that's even beyond control of any one person looking over the universe, that now outside forces are need to come are gonna need to be come together to then thwart whatever it is that's you know going on here so we're in for a potential two-parter uh style kind of finale maybe the next episode will start as its own kind of thing and then kind of start to transform into that potential crossover event because at this point it needs to happen if it doesn't happen then what ifs quality is definitely going to start to diminish in a way where this could be a point of contention as to whether or not what if it will be one of the stronger disney plus episodes as far as the Party Thor episode is concerned, it was fun. It was, like I said, the only thing to really take any grand effect as far as what direction What If is going to go was that ending. Outside of that isolated event, the Party Thor delved more into the cartoony nature of What If can be. And I enjoyed it. Definitely had its moments of like, okay, that joke didn't exactly land. Like, There's some jokes in this episode that I'm like... Alright, uh, who wrote this? I'm sorry. And thankfully, the pacing of the episode, again, moves so quickly, you know, which has become a, a thing for what if. But thankfully, it feels right at home here with this much more cartoony episode. And because of that, it just, like I said, it just feels just more with something that I liked. Something that I was more comfortable with. 
Time to what could potentially be the shortest segment of what I've been playing from the backlog, which honestly is none. <laughs> no backlog playthroughs whatsoever at the time of this uh, recording of this episode because I've been falling in love with Deathloop. I, that's quite honestly all I've been playing for the past week or so, both on stream and off stream. I have not played anything else off stream except Deathloop because I figured out a perfect way to fit Deathloop into my gaming schedule and then on top of that I've just been really busy with trying to film as much in bulk as possible in anticipation for my start date with Amazon as mentioned at the beginning of this episode and considering all these things and all this work ahead of time I've, I told myself that lately I've been noticing how much more proactive I've been during the day so I've been kind of Breaking down my days, my schedules, at least as far as the free days, the off days that I have with like, hey, during the day, since you're feeling a little bit more active, your brain is running uh, and should be running at a more, you know, proficient pace, then that's the time that you should probably get to work on content creation, applying for new jobs, video editing jobs, things like that. Uh, being able to record things like for this podcast or for other assignments. And now with this new assignment for this potential video editor gig, take up on that and, you know, focus on that while at the same time shooting my own stuff for my own new backup YouTube channel. All that stuff has been really taking up most of my time, of course, keeping the social life intact, hanging out with the boys and with the girlfriend, etc., etc. And so when it came, when it came to gaming, it was pretty predominantly being mostly on stream like it's really been mainly the streams where i've been playing the bulk bulk segments of deathloop between two and a half to three hours but i have delved into the game outside of streams for about an hour to an hour and a half an hour and 45 minutes at a time and that that might not sound so long but i mean i don't want to toot my own horn i don't want to you know blow my own ego off but you know, I I could potentially be just a little cracked. A little cracked at this death loop here. And that's probably one of the reasons why I'm loving it so much. Because I don't really want to say too much. Because I definitely want to save some material for the eventual legitimate uh, review of death loop when that comes around. Which could potentially be next week's uh, episode. Because at the rate that I'm going at. It looks like maybe the end, I'm not going to say it's near in sight, but it's just more, it's a lot closer than I was anticipating it to be because I was expecting a little bit more mileage to be put into the game, except that's the thing about this game is that there could be segments of the game that could take a little longer to extract information, deal with upgrades and powers and things like that. And there could be other segments like not too long ago, and I actually have video footage of this transpiring because I did capture the footage, even though I wasn't streaming you know there's the potential for a video review or some kind of uh some kind of video essay etc etc where i captured some footage of me literally playing the game for about 45 minutes because by the time i was done editing a video creating the thumbnail the metadata things like that you know making shorts th things like that i then looked at the time and told myself okay it's 2:45 in the morning and by 3 30 is when i need to be in bed ready to start winding down 
and I told myself, can I really feel at peace playing Deathloop for 45 minutes? And that's exactly what I did, only to then realize that in 45 minutes, I actually got quite a bit done. I was only able to take on one visionary, as the game puts it, which is one of the targets that our main character, Cole Vaughn, is going after. But in this segment, so much transpired as far as story development, you know, accidentally stumbling upon a different pathway that I have taken before, because that's one of the big hooks about this game is that there's these pockets of districts of the island that you can take at different points of the day. And sometimes taking them in different parts of the day will then lead to areas that were open, that were closed before, and places that were open before are now closed. So you need to then think about where you're going to go this time. And then other places that are still open like they were before, only this time there's going to be more enemies. It's going to be more security, more upkeep that you need to take into consideration. And it's through this whole exploration and analyzing process that I would then look at the enemies and be like, okay, who can I take out? Where can I pull off the residium, which is this uh, form? It's kind of like a currency in a matter of speaking, but it's a currency that is definitely recommended to start collecting as soon as possible because then it'll make the game a whole lot easier because as I started to look at the tutorials, which admittedly it's a very lengthy tutorial, I started to gather information, and the information breaks it down like this. There's so many minute things to really take into consideration. I don't want to bolster the episode anymore here any more than I have to. But let's just say that if you, I look at this game almost like filmmaking or creative work, where it's all about the preparation. If you can prepare as early as possible and as long and as efficient as possible then everything else is going to fall into place and i'm already feeling it where i prioritized upgrading my arsenal as far as powers as far as weapons as far as knowing the terrain and gathering information first before even trying to tackle these visionaries in one 24-hour loop and in doing so, I'm already experiencing pockets of the potential of how badass I can really become with this game, with the guns that I now have from loop to loop, the powers that I can carry over from loop to loop, and the upgrades and everything else that I can kind of, uh, I can then slot in as part of my arsenal, as part of my loadout. Which means that if I can just keep doing this work, which is not in any way, shape, or form remedial, like everything just feels so nice to do, even the grinding out of like some of these upgrades and things like that still feels really cool, especially if you want to either go in guns blazing or, you know, keep to yourself and try to be as quiet as possible. It's almost like the bulk of the work will mainly come at the beginning of the game. And like I said, if you can be patient and take your time and be smart it it's almost like a spiral it's almost like you're walking a spiral so to speak and the outer part of the spiral is super wide which means you have to walk more and eventually get tired more but if you just stay patient that spiral gets tighter and tighter and tighter to where you start to realize that your walking is that your walking distance is becoming shorter and shorter and shorter until the part in the middle you just take a couple steps and you're done and some of these segments in the districts during points in time of the day, when when I first tried them, they would take up about an hour or so at a time. And now I'm realizing that within 45 minutes, I'm gathering an upgrade for a power and a different power and a different weapon 
all in the same time window. And that didn't, wasn't happening before. And that's the hook of this game for me. On top of that, you just have the the most of the polish. I'm going to say like, I'm quite literally going to say about 90 to 95% of the polish and the upkeep and the physics and the just the good feeling of the weapons and the powers from Dishonored, which I love so much, being translated here very well by Arcane. The reason why I say 90 to 95 is because there's been a couple of blemishes here and there uh, early on in my playthrough. In fact, during my first stream of Deathloop, there were... I don't, I don't know if I would really categorize them as crashes, but the game froze twice on me. It would then unfreeze after like five minutes, so I would freeze in five minutes, and I would keep the patience alive from, you know, keep myself from resetting the PS5 as hard as possible. And it was thank, thankfully because of the chat while I was live streaming that I was keeping myself busy talking to the chat, only for them to, for the game to then unfreeze. And continue on, almost like nothing happened. It didn't crash, it would just unfreeze, and I was able to get back into playing. And it did happen twice, somewhat back-to-back. I think there was only like a 10-15 minute gap in between the two freezes. Thankfully, from that first uh, stream, that first time that I played the game, it didn't happen again. It, those freezings didn't happen. So, I know that that might not be the same case for everybody. I know that there might be some instances where some people will have their games freeze and crash and burn and they would have to reset from where they first, you know, started the game or you know, maybe they might lose data, you know, your mileage may vary, but as far as my personal experience, the game froze twice on my first uh time opening the game, but it didn't crash. It would unfreeze, get back to the game, and thankfully since then it hasn't happened both on stream or off. What has happened on stream, however, uh, or off stream, is again a couple of minor blemishes that thankfully has not frozen the game or broken it in any scope or measure. One instance is actually a hilarious moment that I captured not only on stream, but I made a clip out of it and I'm hoping to post it on, you know, TikTok or whatever. Was a segment where these characters were frozen into an animation, an animation that looks like they're waving. At a camera or something. And it was literally like a, a, a brussel. Of like three or four enemies. That were just caught in this waving animation. From a distance. They didn't see me. They were like waving in the opposite direction. And I'm over here just staring like. What are you doing? And I could have easily shot them from a distance. To unlock them and unfreeze them from that animation. But it was just too funny. That I just had to. Just keep staring. Keep staring at this anomaly. An anomaly that from the looks of it. If I had just waited long enough i think it would have fixed itself because after a while i started to notice that one by one one of the characters one of the enemies the npcs that were waving would stop waving and then just walk away almost like they got bored so i feel like if i had just given it some time they would have all unfrozen from that animation eventually and going about the separate way so it was probably just a you know a thing with the ai where they were just stuck in a place another time that happened off stream but i think i did capture it with the ps5's share feature was the character walking into a door and they weren't opening the door so they were just stuck in place walking and then a, a couple of times here and there a little bit of the lighting would kind of break through some shadows where the shadows would kind of flicker a little bit um which again is like inconsequential when you think about just the overall look of the game and the fact that the game was just still running at a smooth 60 frames per second but from time to time some shadows and lighting effects will kind of bleed amongst each other that will cause a little bit of a flicker and the flicker wouldn't even last too long so 
Things like that would happen from time to time. Things that could be easily rectified with a patch. Just so long that that patch does not reintroduce the freezing that I was dealing with at the beginning of my, my playing with the game. Overall though, Deathloop is in fact a strong contender for Game of the Year. With that said... The bar is not as high as years past, you know, despite the pandemic, 2020 had some heavy hitters. I mean, we had Ghost, we had Hades, we had, uh, for some people, Last of Us Part Two. for others, Animal Crossing New Leaf, and then for my, you know, for various others as well, Final Fantasy VII Remake, slash Part 1. So, I will then reiterate that even though Deathloop is my game of the year and it's a very you know, great experience retrofitted for me that I can look at and go, okay, I know what to tackle off stream and I know what to tackle on stream and kind of flex and, you know, maneuver how I would want to perceive my playstyle amongst the environment as well as which leads I want to tackle first and foremost and how do I want to make this experience tailored to me. It's also an experience that I know is not going to be coming very frequently this year because as me, along with various other people that have been studying the industry and how the industry has been adapting to the pandemic into that, into that new work style, we're going to reiterate that 2020 was not going to be the year that was going to be affected by the pandemic. It was going to be this year. So despite Deathloop being my current Game of the Year contender, the bar is not exactly as high as other years has has had it been, and because of that, it could it could very well be that Deathloop will stick as my game of the year contender, and it may not stick for others as their game of the year. So let's uh, pull the band-aid here and talk about that Nintendo Direct. So we are going to be covering some bullet points here as far as what were the major highlights. But let me go ahead and just start off by saying that I normally don't look at these showcases as of late and try to you know pander to the least common denominator with certain terms that a lot of people really really like to use especially on communities on Twitch and YouTube and I dare even say Twitter but I am not going to abstain from using the term trash when talking about at least some segments of the new Nintendo Direct but let's get into the headlines first now I went across different websites, and almost none of the websites that show a summary of the Nintendo Direct bothered to list them in chronological order as they unfolded through the Direct, I noticed. I, I don't know why they, they did this, but... Anyways, let's go down the list here. So, Kirby and the Forgotten Land was revealed. And this was actually revealed prior to the Direct itself. I think this was the game that was leaked uh, beforehand. And people were like, if you don't want to get the Direct spoiled, and I'm like, it's a Direct. It's not a, it's not, it's not Marvel. You know, don't have to worry about spoilers. It's a, leaks happen all the time. I mean, it's a video game. Come on. Anyways. Kirby in the Forgotten Land, or as like some of the commentators in my Twitch chat were saying, Kirby Odyssey. <laughs> or, or, or as I like to call it, The Last of Us... Um, 
uh, Kirby edition because <laughs> of the, the 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 dystopian settings that were being you know set upon this island where you had like the the foliage and the greenery kind of overtaking the the, the city landscape that you saw in some segments of the of the trailer. But from a premise um, you know standpoint, this actually looks kind of interesting. I'm not gonna lie. Now with that said, I've never really been a Kirby guy as far as like the mainline games. I've always enjoyed playing as Kirby in Smash. But in terms of the character and the actual franchise, you know, with the powers that they use within the platforming kind of, you know, name that it's made for itself amongst those games, I've never really been too much into them. And almost the overall consensus that I've heard as far as like the most recent Kirby games, uh, whether it be with the Wii U or with the Switch, with which was I think the last one was Kirby All-Stars, was that they were not bad games, but... They were kind. They were kind of steep, being you know, being that they were priced at like what fifty bucks, almost sixty bucks for the nature of the gameplay and the shortness of the campaign. They were like, yeah, wait for a sale on these. And whenever they go on sale, they always go on sale for like forty five bucks. And I'm like, yeah, fifteen bucks. But I, you know, from what I've heard other people say, that's not enough for me to be like, oh yeah, here's forty five bucks. So I, that's always been the the gate that would keep me at bay from really divulging into the Kirby games. What I've seen from this trailer, though, as far as, like, the boss battles and the gameplay and the overall look of this Forgotten Land game is that it actually looks legitimately interesting. I would actually not be opposed to follow this game. I'm not, you know, necessarily hyped, but I would definitely want to see some more gameplay, see if there's any kind of big draw or hook that makes me go, okay, mark my calendar for the release window of spring 2022, which is when Kirby and the Forgotten Land is set to release. And it's going to be taking place much more in a 3D landscape as opposed to the 2D nature that Kirby started itself with back in the NES. Well, I don't know about NES, but I do know for a fact that the, the Kirby games trail back all the way to the SNES days. So... Um, I do know that there's a lineage there. It's just a lineage that I was never really a big part of. But who knows? Maybe Kirby and the Forgotten Land will break that mold. You know what lineage I was a part of, though? Nintendo 64. And I should probably say that the my opinions on the Direct almost speak, <laughs> almost speak for themselves when I tell you that my highlight for the fucking thing was the reveal of the N64 games coming to Nintendo Online. But with a catch, unfortunately. But, you know, Nintendo's going to Nintendo. And here is what is going to be uh, coming from this whole development with the N64. First of all, it was actually a little bit of a surprise because I think the longest rumor going around for the past couple of weeks was that Game Boy Advance games were going to be coming to Nintendo Online. And that was very, very tangible for me like because I felt like the Game Boy Advance games shared more DNA with the NES and SNES games that were already on Nintendo Online as opposed to N64 I personally felt prior to this announcement that N64 was going just a little too far as far as Obviously, the games being in three-dimensional spaces and taking up more, much more, much more uh, megabyte space and just more, you know, time and bandwidth to be posted on an online service like Nintendo Online. So I'm like, okay, what's going to be the caveat? And it looks like a very, un you know, logical one is coming uh, up here, but with a variable that has yet to be determined that will probably make or break um, decisions for various people, including me. 
But basically, Nintendo's going to be adding N64 and the very unprecedented move, Sega Genesis games to Nintendo Switch Online. So I was full on board thinking that it was going to be Game Boy Advance. So when that Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time music started playing, I was like, no fucking way. All right. Okay. Still want my Zelda collection, but at least there's going to be a way to play Ocarina of Time on my Switch. All right. You know, that the portability factor stays alive, not just for Ocarina of Time, but as they divulged here in the direct that in the future, we are looking at the potential releases of Majora's Mask, F-Zero uh, X, the fact that they are still keeping the F-Zero name in their vernacular, in their, in their vocabulary, in their mouths, gives me just an ounce, not even an ounce, a gram of hope for a potential revival of F-Zero, but who fucking knows at this point, really? With that said, those games are going to be coming in the future. The launch lineup, however, will be the usual suspects of N64 Royalty, Super Mario 64, The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, Mario Kart 64, Star Fox 64, Sin and Punishment, Dr. Mario 64, Mario Tennis 64, Win Back, and Yoshi's Story. Most of these I have played, and some others will be interesting to try out with this new expansion pack addition to Nintendo Switch Online. That's where the caveat comes into mind, is that in order to receive these N64 games and Sega Genesis games, you will then need to upgrade your Nintendo Online Switch Online service to the new expansion pack membership. The update will arrive in October 2021, and Nintendo promises it will reveal more about pricing and an exact release date closer to its launch. So, that's the variable. How much more are you going to be pricing? The fact that they weren't so quick to unveil pricing, it could be cause for concern, but of course, at the same time, why would you want to unveil pricing right now? Let us ride the high that is the news headline, and 64 games are coming to Switch. Now, of course, this is not going to work on everybody. Some people are still adamant that they want they prefer a virtual console where you get to buy the games individually and just keep them without having there be tied to a membership. And that's un- understandable. In fact, I probably would have gone for that as well. But keep in mind, I was still under the mindset that we were going to be getting Game Boy Advance games and they did a la- they could have potentially made a last minute switch and been like, "Hey, and 64 games and Sega Genesis games, a console that I didn't even follow." Uh throughout the 90s that wasn't really a part of my childhood and I could probably now expose myself to for the longest time. Uh, my buddy Service Assassin, he, I think, he was very uh, much into the Sega Genesis. So this reveal was actually uh, pretty dope for, for him, not necessarily from the N64 side, but rather the Genesis side. And, you know, uh, Vector Men and a handful of other uh, of those other kind of uh, Sega Genesis games, you know, those are going to be speaking more to people like him, whereas the N64 is going to be speaking more towards me. Uh, Ocarina of Time I could probably play for like the 10th time now, but never played Sin and Punishment or Windback, so those are going to be brand new experiences experiences for me. It's just a matter of how much more that pricing is going to be. And as I told my Twitch community or my Twitch viewers yesterday during the event, it, it really is just a question of how much. If we're talking $5, which is the preferred amount, maximum 10 increments from $20 to $30 a year, 
I would probably say, you know what? I can buy with that. I'll probably go with that. If we start getting towards 40 or $50 to where not only are we doubling the price, but damn near two and a half times more, that's where I'm like, well, I guess I'm just going to have to uh, stick with my recent, recently discovered methods of how to be able to play all of the N64 games that I desire and be able to stream them without uh, much in the way of limitations, just as long as I know what I'm doing. I'll just leave it at that. But it is interesting to note that, you know, this this was a very um, a somewhat unprecedented move as far as the N64. The Sega Genesis, I would probably say, that's more in line with what I was thinking about with the Game Boy Advance as far as the graphical nature of some of these games like Sonic the Hedgehog 2, Streets of Rage 2, Echo the Dolphin, Castlevania Bloodlines, etc., etc. I know like a lot of people are probably likely, you know, very stoked for those uh, for those games. Again, I don't have that strong of an affinity, but at least there'll be exposure for people who never managed to ca- catch them in the first place. And then in the future, like I said, Majora's Mask will be coming, Kirby 64, Banjo-Kazooie is uh, quote-unquote coming home. And then Pokemon Snap, the OG Pokemon Snap. That would be a nice uh, trip down memory lane. But F-Zero X with some online? Oh, man, it, it it is over. Moving on from that there, in a very weird kind of turn, along with the announcement of N64 games, they're like, well, we know that nostalgia is really important for you guys. You know, that's where we make most of our money. So we're also bringing forward some new wireless controllers. For the old-fashioned N64 and Sega Genesis uh, experience. Sega Genesis, I can see. That looks like a comfortable controller. uh, Albeit an old-school controller. But it still looks like it does the job. N64, on the other hand, that's the one where I'm like, yeah, I don't see this thing selling out anytime soon. Because the N64 controller was a product of its time. But that's all it really is it's a product of its time from that point forward i can definitely wholeheartedly say that nintendo improved upon the controller with the gamecube say what you want to want about the wii but now fast forwarding with the switch i would rather stick with my pro controller to play these n64 games as opposed to retaining the nostalgia that is that god-awful joystick there in the middle and and i am not about to pay 49.99 for that i would rather take my chances and maybe go on Amazon and pick up that Brawler 64, which is supposed to be a much more ergonomic kind of layout of the N64 controller, but with the GameCube aesthetics, if you will. Moving on from that to a headline that mainly took place at the end of the show as its uh, closer, but nevertheless, it pretty much made a lot of people happy. Bayonetta 3 lives with not only some gameplay footage, but also a 2022 release window. And here's the thing, Bayonetta and Bayonetta 2, haven't played them, but I do own them on the Switch as a double pack, and I do want to play them, but as of right now, I, like I mentioned before with the Sega Genesis line, I don't have a strong affinity for Bayonetta because I haven't played the games, I'm looking forward to playing them and Bayonetta 3 being added to that as well, but right now there really are backlog games that I have yet to feel exposed to, and I can definitely see people getting happy like I'm super happy for the people that are stoked to see Bayonetta footage come after radio silence for the longest time 
Now it's just a matter of waiting on that Metro Prime resurgence to then tell us what's going on with that game. You know, some development notices and stuff like that. But chances are we're probably going to get more Breath of the Wild 2 news before we even get anything um, like that. With that said, a lot of people are wondering who's that mystery character at the end. And it's funny because even though I have not played any of these games, seeing that character that silu- character silhouette at the end, I'm like... I, you know, people who have been following Bayonetta up until this point could probably make their own theories and speculations. But even I'm looking at that character going, so are we about to get a Devil May Cry <laughs> crossover? Because that legit looks like Virgil. Like, are we really about to cross over here? Because even I could pick up on the Virgil-ish kind of looks of that character at the end. And even I, like I said, having not played Benetta 1 or 2 or even the Devil May Cry games, except for the DMC reboot, even I can pick up on the the like the likeness of Virgil. So, unfortunately, I can't really speak too much on Bayonetta 3, but I'm looking forward to playing it. What I saw in terms of the gameplay, it looked neat. It didn't really blow me away, except for the Kaiju gameplay. But I'm definitely going to have to rewatch that gameplay in a very uncompressed format because the speed that these Platinum games like to move at... It's not very friendly for a Twitch stream, uh, whether it be a Twitch stream that I'm watching or the Twitch stream that I'm actually, you know, creating and putting out. So all those fluctuations with the bandwidth was kind of compressing the footage, so it didn't really look great, but that's on a technical merit. I'm going to have to check it out afterwards in full 1080p, 60 frames per second, and see how that unfurls and probably win me over. Moving on from that, Splatoon 3 gameplay and a single-player campaign titled Return of the Mammalians. Now, here's the thing. Never played the original Splatoon, but I did play Splatoon 2 being ported over to the Switch. And that did come with a single-player campaign in and of itself. And I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed the multiplayer stuff. I remember streaming it a handful of times and having quite a bit of fun with the multiplayer, with the different modes, the actual mechanics of the game, you know, playing with the with the goop and being able to traverse the traversal. The way it just kind of created its own thing in the multiplayer space, I really did enjoy. The single-player stuff was kind of, you know, it was a campaign. It was the, one of those Nintendo campaigns where it's like, there's kind of a narrative here, but it's nothing harrowing. It's nothing, you know, crazy. There were some pretty neat boss battles I remember there being in that single-player campaign, so I'm hoping that they can kind of keep that alive here in Splatoon 3 with this dystopian kind of look that they're trying to go for. I just didn't really like the presentation because there was something about the presentation that to me was like, okay, the way that you're teasing this with like quick cuts and quick frames of these characters that are like, oh my God, who is this? You know, what does this mean? You can do that with Mario Odyssey 2 when that rolls around or the next mainline Mario game or Breath of the Wild 2 when you're ready to show more. Splatoon is not at that level of being teased the way that it was. You know what I'm saying? Like, I just, I, there was just something about the aesthetic of this presentation that I was like, I, I don't know. I just, it didn't really need to become a, you know, be put across th- this way. I really wanted a deep dive into the premise of the story. All I really got was that title, only leading to my speculation that there were these characters called Millions, probably in the first game, because. I didn't recognize them, and being that I haven't played the original game, that's probably explains that. Otherwise, I'm probably going to have to replay the, the campaign for 2 again because I can barely remember anything outside of those boss battles. And again, the different 
points of the map that were then unlock as you kind of progress forward and as long as it's not very uh tedious as moments in the in the second games was like with the third game then i'll be all you know set in stone for that the the whole direct opened with an expansion for monster hunter rise called sunbreak sunbreak that was announced for summer 2022 now somebody in my chat mentioned that that's a very ways off for a dlc because of that I'm expecting for the expansion to be rather girthy uh, in this in the vein that it's probably this expansion called Sunbreak for Monster Hunter Rise is likely going to be the Iceborne, quote unquote, to Monster Hunter Rise, just like Iceborne was to Monster Hunter World, where they title it as an expansion. But when it comes out, people play it and reviews come back saying, actually... You know, if if you want to get technical, yes, it is an expansion, but you're still looking at like a good 10 or 12 hours, which is quite meaty for an expansion, but that's only because the core game could be an experience that could take up about 100 hours of your time. So, some break is probably going to be amongst the same kind of ratio, where I think Monster Hunter Rise on average took a lot of people about 20 to 30 hours to beat, and that's not being a completionist, not doing the extra uh, end game content, or even the expanded uh, ending that they were released as free DLC afterwards. If you're one of those people that likes to do everything, then you're probably looking at another 100 150 hours. So Sunbreak is probably looking to you know break even with the way that Iceborne did, where it's going to be like about 10 hours or so. So for a DLC, that is rather massive, and that would probably explain why it's a ways off into summer 2022. With that said, I'll wait for the reviews because as much as I enjoyed Monster Hunter Rise, till the till this day, the recording of this episode, I have yet to play even the free DLC that was re- released afterwards with new monsters and that new ending. I want to, but I just haven't, you know, made m- that cognitive motion to actually hook up the switch again load up the game again and actually jump back in because i have so much to play i have so much to do on the side so it's really gonna have to be a worthwhile expansion for me to get me on board but what what we saw here in the cinematic looks tantalizing and that monster looks nothing to fuck with now before i get into some rants about the direct let's kind of spitfire some things that you would generally expect from a direct which is quite an awful lot of ports and release windows and announcements and updates on some things that were mainly coming to Switch and are very emphasized for Switch, but they are technically coming to other consoles as well, and they're, again, ports of things that we've gotten in the past, etc., etc. So, uh, we got, like I said, a handful of ports. Disco Elysium actually finally gets released. We knew it was coming to Switch, but we just didn't know when. This is the Final Cut edition, which made the rounds for Game of the Year, I think, last year as one of the better, one of the best RPGs to be released, not just last year, but in recent memory, and I'm definitely looking forward to play it. But when I saw the style of game, I was like, I'm either going to have to play this on PC or on Switch. And if it's coming on Switch without any kind of graphical sacrifice, I am game. And it looks like it's almost here. In fact, digitally, it's here in just a couple of weeks. If I wanted to get it physically or in any sort of like collector's edition, then we'll probably have to wait until I I think they said like January or February. Let me see if I could find the little segment here before we move on. Let's make sure that... Disco Elysium Rise on Switch October 12th, and there's no mention of the physical edition, unfortunately, on this article, so I apologize. 
to all listeners here. But Room Factory 5 and its farming RPG arrive on Switch in 2022. Shadowrun Trilogy brings three classic RPGs to Switch in 2022. So the Shadowrun Trilogy, which is like this asymmetric cyberpunk meets fantasy game. Uh, Shadowrun Returns, Shadowrun Dragonfall. I was about to say ball. Director's Cut and Shadowrun Hong Kong Extended Edition, which are turn-based combat, branching narrative paths, and more. I saw, you know, the little bits in the trailer that I saw, I was like, you know, much like with Disco Elysium, they looked neat. So they're coming in 2022, and they definitely feel like there would be games that would feel very comfortable playing in the uh, on the Switch, along with Disco Elysium. So that was pretty neat. Delta Rune Chapter 2 is, fun- is coming. More stuff to Mario Golf, and the Mario Party collection from the N64 maps is coming. Uh, the safe bet that I almost, you know, wish I would have made a bet for money is that this, this director was going to showcase some more Metroid Dread stuff. So we definitely got an extended trailer that then ended with uh, an announcer telling us to check out a website for more lore, which now has me worried that we're not going to get any. They're gonna. Uh, what was the game that had like all the? Oh, Destiny, where that like when Destiny first came out, the first Destiny game, where it was like, oh, you have all this lore. But if you want to read it, go to the website about the. And it's like, what? No, put it in the game. Put it in the game. You know, we don't mind reading, or at least you know, some people don't mind reading. Just put it in the fucking game. And I'm I'm scared that Metroid Dread might fall, might fall dreadfully victim to that. Uh, along with that, some people who are uh, fans of you know really uh, tough but really nostalgic games from the 90s also rejoiced with the reveal of the. Act Razor Renaissance uh, Remastered Edition from the SNES version coming out uh, yesterday, actually, the day of the Direct, as well as the Castlevania Advance Collection. And these are games that are coming to the Switch, but I think they're also going to be available on PlayStation. So if there are uh, any people out there who are a huge fan of, of these Game Boy Advance and SNES versions of the games with remastered editions with some quality of life improvements and things like that, collections, etc., they're rejoicing, and I'm pretty sure they're already having a handful of uh, uh, of uh, fun downloading these things. Although I heard some people say some mixed things about the Act Razor, but trust me, I, w- I was one of those people when I was watching that uh, unfold during the direct. I was like, I never played this. So when you call it an instant classic, didn't really ring home to me all that much. What did captivate my attention was that Project Triangle Strategy, which is now just called triangle strategy i mean stop calling it project if you're just gonna name it the project it's like just just call it that until you actually give it a brand new title stop putting the pro it's just like octopath traveler project octopath traveler is now called wait for it octopath traveler (laughs) just just stop but good to see that we now have a release window of march 2022 because just like octopath traveler this looks gorgeous i like that it's not a copy and paste it's actually a som- um, isometric so that's going to be rather interesting still turn-based but it's much more grid-based as opposed to just you know side-by-side fighting and it looks gorgeous it looks awesome it looks interesting looking forward to the uh, adjustments to the difficulty that they made, as well as improvements. Uh, you know, the the dialogue is a bit more streamlined, etc., etc. But in terms of just you know something that looks again at home for Switch, this is something along with Octopath Traveler that I'm looking forward to playing. So now let's get to my main issues as to why what once this direct was over, I just like I just couldn't help but feel 
disappointed. I mean, like I said, there's going to be some things in this direct that are going to be more highlights to other people than with others. Bayonetta definitely comes to mind where I'm like, I'm happy for the people that are stoked for Bayonetta. I don't have that strong affinity, so I can't say that. But what I can definitely say strongly I detested were two things. One, that movie casting news that could have easily have been a fucking blog post or I dare say even a tweet did not need to be part of the direct because I know it's Nintendo related, it's video game related. They're technically talking about a video game movie, a video game movie adaption. But unless you're going to actually show us a trailer or even a teaser trailer, a short 45 second to a minute long teaser, don't just come on screen and be like, oh, these are the movie casting. No, like, no, you, you could have just easily waited. You know, you're taking up time of what could have been, you know, another game being showcased, even an indie game. Doesn't even have to be a main, you know, doesn't have to be Metro Prime, doesn't have to be a Zelda collection, etc. You know, the, the very holy grails that we've been offering, desiring. You could have been showing other stuff or at the very least cut this direct shorter, you know, down to 35, 30 minutes even. Because this movie casting choice, uh, movie casting news, not only did it take up unnecessary time because we're talking about a movie and not video games just because it's being, you know, tailored to Nintendo or tied to Nintendo. But on top of that, almost everybody, the internet is just lit with how they're feeling about these movie casting choices. Where, if you guys want to watch firsthand my reactions, I've highlighted the my reaction on Twitch as a separate segment and I've uploaded my reaction as a separate video on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash darkspiderdavid. You can check out my personal reaction right there. But towards the end of the reaction, I mentioned that these were all checkbox choices for the voices of the characters. And I stand by that. Because just like I said in my breakdown of the of the direct at the end, as well as uh, what I was talking about with my buddy Surface later on in person when we hung out, was that these were all safe checkbox choices for the voice acting that were not done by a casting director, were not done by a director, were not even done by the writers. They were done by Nintendo. They were made by Nintendo. This movie is not being written, uh, written direct. Uh, this God, this movie is not being written by someone, or someone's. It's not being directed by a person. It's not being uh, produced by uh, a person. It's being created by Nintendo. And ordinarily, that's not how movies work. All right, movies are directed by a director, written by screenwriters or a screenwriter, and produced by producers. And you have a casting director that does the work for the director to then scope out talent and then get the seal of approval from a director to be like, yes, that's who I want as my voice talent. That's who I want as my main on-camera talent, etc., etc. And I just don't feel any of that with the Mario movie after this these announcements. Every time they kept mentioning a name that I've already seen too much recently, but on top of that, in another animated movie, for fuck's sake, Jack Black is going to be Claptrap, and now he's going to be Bowser in another video game adaption? It's like, again, safe choices. Keegan-Michael Key as Toad, great. So now every time Toad talks, all I'm going to see is that bird 
that uh, was it the yellow bird or the bunny? I can't remember who he played. I think he played the yellow bird from uh, Toy Story 4 because he was in that. And I'm pretty sure he's been in a handful of other animated stuff. As well as Chris Pratt. He voiced uh, Emmett from the Lego movie. So it's going to be the Lego movie. It's like I'm going to be watching the Lego movie again. Which I liked, but the reason why I liked was because there was some talent and some vision from writers and directors Chris Lord and Phil, uh, 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 Phil Lord and Chris Miller. Who I love behind the wheel with their style and branding of humor. It was because of that combined with the talent from the voice work with, um, with uh, Elizabeth Banks and uh, Chris Pratt and uh, Liam Neeson, etc. And Will Ferrell that made that movie one of my favorites of that year. And I don't see that here. I just see this list of actors that Nintendo showed to Illumination. I was about to say Universal, but I don't think even Universal is involved here. Illumination going, pay the money, get them on here. And that's it. There was no audition. There was no clearance. There was no fitting. Nothing. That's all I feel. And the only one that I can look at and go, okay, actually, I don't mind that. And it looks like I'm not the only one. Is surprisingly, Anya Taylor-Joy as Peach. Because we haven't seen her do too much of voice work. But again, uh, Keegan-Michael Key, uh, Charlie Day. Charlie Day, I think uh, one of my Twitch uh, chatters reminded me of. Uh, He voiced, I think, one of the characters in Monsters University. So he's been there already. We've already know what his voice sounds like. We're just going to hear Charlie Day when Luigi talks. So Charlie Day, Jack Black, Keegan-Michael Key. Again, these were all very cookie-cutter, safe choices. There was no, like, you know, no no names that can bring something to the character. And then to add insult to injury at the end, Charles Martinet will be involved in special cameos. And that's when I remembered people on Twitter saying, imagine voicing a character that is near and dear to you for 25 years, only for then when they make a movie, they're like, oh yeah, let's go for someone who's already famous. And here's the thing. All these actors that I'm saying are safe choices and I'm criticizing Nintendo for choosing them, I like. I, I do like Chris Pratt. I do like Keegan-Michael Key. I do like uh, uh, Jack Black and uh, Charlie Day. But I like them where they're at. Not here for Nintendo. Not here for Mario. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm tr- Even 24 hours later, I'm still having trouble wrapping my brain around this segment of the Direct. And then that's still not considering the other weird feeling that I was getting from this direct was that it was feeling like a direct to announce other directs because back to back we got what a lot of people were thinking was going to be the next or the final Smash character reveal only for us to just get uh, uh, what's his face coming on screen being like, oh yeah, Sakurai is going to hold a separate thing on October 5th. And once again, insult and injury is the name of the game. Because at this point, they're doing it on fucking purpose. They did that on purpose. Not only to stretch it out, but it was only after, uh, until after the Direct ended that I then realized that that Sakurai Presents the final character of Smash, dated for October 5th, is the same date that Nickelodeon All-Stars Brawl releases. No fucking way in hell is that a coincidence. I'm w- and now I'm willing to bet that they were ready. They were ready 
to reveal the final Smash character DLC in this direct. But upon learning about Nickelodeon All-Stars Brawl and the release date of that game and how much it's borrowing from Smash, Nintendo was like, okay, so officially we can't sue you because we didn't really patent the style of fighting because, you know, PlayStation All-Stars and all this stuff. But we can definitely, you know, overshadow you because we're Nintendo. And we're going to schedule our thing. And it's petty as fuck. Like, that, that's just so immature uh, of Nintendo after finally realizing that. On top of that, this is a Nintendo Direct. It's not an Indie Direct. It's not a Pokemon Direct. It's not a whatever Direct. It's a Nintendo Direct. If there's a, sh- a, a, a show to reveal your Smash character, it would have been this one. But because you wanted to be petty, you're going to move it to October 5th and just put a fucking screen on a, 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 gra- a screenshot on the screen showing, Hey, tune in on October 5th at buttfuck 7 a.m., which I'm not going to, by the way. Just to do that. Followed by another little segment to say, oh yeah, in November we're going to release new Animal Crossing stuff and we're going to have a Animal Crossing Direct in October. And I'm like, what is going on? You're not showing us anything. You're literally doing a Direct for other Directs. And again, going back to what I said earlier. To... Give Nintendo just the slightest ounce of benefit of doubt. Is that again, this is a symptom about from the pandemic, you know, and I meant that pun (laughs) because it really is the pandemic starting to spread to Nintendo, which is that they don't have much to show. So they're going to fill in the pockets with the Mario movie casting news that didn't have to be here and the direct announcements of other directs. Or other things going on in the future. That didn't need to be taking up this amount of time. So I want to say that if you were to segment and split up the direct into different parts and different segments. I would say that a third of it was this bullshit of the movie casting news. And announcing a Animal Crossing direct. And a Smash direct for the character on the same day of Nickelodeon All Souls Brawl's release. And then one third of ports. Some of which I'm looking forward to, to actually playing on the Switch, because I was waiting for them to be released on the Switch, but they're ports nonetheless. And then the last third was actual, genuine Nintendo Direct content. Whether it be Bayonetta 3, the the new Kirby game, Splatoon 3, etc, etc. Overall, creating a very weird, mixed bag of a Direct that I was teasing the idea of calling trash but now i'm like you know what there was some good but there was also just as well as some bad and some very mediocre middle of the way kind of uh material in in the form of like i said ports and the usual suspect of like okay this is coming to switch this is coming at a later time this is and because of that it was just a you know very meh direct and what makes me so passionate about feeling that way for a Nintendo Direct is considering that even you know even though right now things could change Nintendo's no stranger to going long periods of time without a direct and who's to say that this is the last direct we'll get in 2021 but uh, you know likewise who's to say that we won't get one in December to kind of showcase what we can get in the first half of 2022 potentially there could there, there could there, there could always be that chance but there's no chance to to, to say that that, couldn't ha- that could not happen. And we might ha- just have 
not it, we might not just have a direct until early 2022 which means we're going to be dry for the foreseeable holiday season with that said thank you for sticking around for what was a much longer episode than intended at the beginning i was like oh nothing go- went on but my rants sure did culminating in what could potentially be an over an hour and 20 minute hour and 30 minute episode of the Dark Spider Cast. Thank you guys for making it all the way to the very end. If you guys want to catch me outside of your favorite podcasting platform of choice, make sure to check out the YouTube, the Twitch, the Twitter, the Instagram, and the Patreon, and the official website. Links are going to be found in the description for this episode in whichever platform it is available on. Thank you guys so much for watching. Stay safe, stay healthy, and as always, stay humble. I shall see you next week. <laughs>